You know, one of the questions that I ask when I meet people here, come to St. Martin's or in one of the groups that we have, one of the first questions I often ask is, well, what do you think about the Bible? What do you make of the Bible? And is it just good advice or is it the word of God to you? And if they're a Christian, I might ask them another question. How are you going with your Bible reading, your daily devotions? Research says the odds of giving into temptation, such as drinking to excess, viewing pornography, lashing out in anger, gossiping and lying, significantly decrease when you're reading the Bible at least most days of the week. Decreasing your odds of struggling with issues, feeling bitter, thinking destructively about yourself or having difficulty forgiving others and feeling discouraged. Much higher odds, significantly higher odds of giving financially, memorising scripture, sharing your faith with others. Less likely to be to feel spiritually stagnant and feel you can't please God. It's the number one factor in growing in your own faith. How are you going? Are you smashing it? Awesome. Are you struggling? Take heart. Because we're going to see today in Nehemiah chapter 8, by the gracious hand of God, God has brought Nehemiah and his people back to his city, the holy city, Jerusalem. He's called on them to rebuild the walls. And they do it in less than two months, despite opposition. Enemies outside, struggles within spiritual warfare, as we've seen these last few weeks. But today, now, we see very clearly that God brings revival and restoration through his word. Have a look with me at the first couple of verses there in Nehemiah chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And so, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. God had brought Nehemiah and the people. and They'd restored um, the walls and they were ready to go in less than 52 days. It was an incredible work of God. And the people respond as one. Men, women, children, 50,000 people, a stadium full of people. This wasn't like Marvel Stadium down in Melbourne uh, where the Australian basketball, Boomers versus the USA, where no one could really see what was going on. No, Ezra read out the scriptures and they could all see him. They could all hear. And this day was the turning point for God's people centred around the word of God. It was a day marked by patience as the scripture is read. It was a, it was a day for attention. There's a hunger for the word of God. It's a day of reverence. They stand up and they praise God. And it's a day of worship. You see their passion as they receive God's word with thanks and praise, with tears and joy. And they stand and they speak and they kneel and they humbly submit every fibre of their being to the authority of God's word. What the Bible says, God says. It's not just good advice. It's the very word of God to us. And they heard it that day as if they'd never heard it before. You know, the prophet Jeremiah spoke the new covenant promises and he looked forward to this day when the spirit of God would come on his people and they would hear and see and desire to hear God's word and to do it and commit together to do it. It's what we see in the New Testament. You go and you see what Peter says. If you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you crave scripture like a a newborn baby 
craves milk. You know that cry, that distinctive cry of a newborn baby needing milk? That's what a Christian does. You, are, you don't just appreciate God's word, you enjoy it. You long for it and it fills you with joy. Deuteronomy 32 says, God's word is not empty, but it's your very life. Psalm 119, this incredibly epic reflection on God's word says that God's word is perfect and trustworthy and true. It's a lamp to your feet. It's a light to your path. Isaiah 55 says it doesn't return void. Hebrews 4 says it's living and active. 2 Timothy 3 says it is God-breathed, inspired, profitable, so we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so that means as family, as friends, as co-workers, as students, when we're well, when we're sick, when life is great, when things fall apart, we cry out to God and we read his word because the scripture gives us joy and hope for eternity. The problem is we become so familiar with it. I mean, if you're anything like me, you've got multiple copies of the Bible in your house, in multiple rooms in the house. It's on your phone. It's on your computer. You can download it. You can go on the Internet. It's everywhere. We take it for granted. We can all have our own copy. Back then, of course, you had to assemble. You had to come and hear it read. We have it in our own language. We're able to read and to understand what a wonderful privilege that is. And that's why verses 7 and 8 are such remarkable verses for us. You see the Levites and all of those names. Well done, by the way, Meredith, on reading all of those names. And if anyone could do it, you could do it. So well done. The Levites, all of those names, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. These are the, the leaders, the Bible study leaders, the, you know, the, the Sunday school teachers. These are the people who are able to teach God's word. They read from the book of the law, verse 8, the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people could understand what was being read. Whether it's a sermon, whether it's a home group, whether it's Sunday school, what's the most important thing? That it be faithful, that it might be clear and it might be engaging because it is the very word of God. There's three crucial steps we see. They read the law. They make it clear. They expound it. For what purpose? So that people can understand what was being read. The word is read, it's expounded, it's made clear and distinct. The goal is understanding So they might live it out in faithfulness to their great God, the God who keeps his promises. As we've seen all the way through Nehemiah, God is faithful and he keeps his promises. That's why we read his word. So the Levites circulated among the people. They expanded the word in these small groups. They broke it down. They explained the meaning. They make the word of God crystal clear to highlight the insights it holds and they make its applications obvious. There's this fresh clarity. There's this aha moment there's this true sense of understanding Uh, you'll know this year we've been encouraging you to think about who is it that you could go and read the bible with one to one the word one to one and i hope that everyone here is praying for an opportunity to invite someone if you haven't had the boldness yet to invite someone pray for boldness because every one of us has a circle of friends and a network of people that we might be able to reach out to and bring the very word of life Just this week when I was chatting with my friend Craig and as we continue to read through the word one-to-one, he said, this must be the best time ever to be a minister because there's so much going on in the world. He's like, it's like the world's about to end. You've got Trump and, you know, you've got China and terrible things that are happening in the world. You've got all these debates, you know, the abortion debate and all the other things that are happening. 
He said, this is so relevant to what's going on in the world. And I'm like, yes. The Bible is clear and speaks to our very situation. There are some places in the world where there is such a hunger for the word of God that if you stop explaining the word of God in under an hour and a half or two hours, people will be quite upset. That's, that's right, Kamal, isn't it? If, you're, if you go back to your hometown, they'll be keep talking. The minister will go on for about two hours, right? Something like that. <laughs> There's a hunger for the word of God. I know these are different cultures with different sets of expectations. Yet nevertheless, as Don Carson, one of the great commentators, says, there's something sad about a community that feels it's being robbed of its precious time if it's given more than a five-minute sermonette, which can only ever grow a Christianette. See, what should be the case, regardless of time, is taking whatever steps are necessary to read God's word, to faithfully teach God's word from the youngest to the oldest, every single one of us, hungering to hear and truly understand because that is the goal, understanding. So why we call our kids' ministries nibble, munch, chomp and chew. We want to feed on God's word, even from those very little nibblers, the very youngest ones. It's the same for us, isn't it? Because what's the result? Number one, the result is a, the joy of understanding which begins with tears, verse 9. This is incredibly striking. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. You see, when we gather here Sunday by Sunday, it's like a a covenant renewal ceremony. We come here to hear God speak to us. What's God got to say to us today and how are we going to live that out this week? It's what we do when we read our Bible every morning, when we do our daily devotions, when we, when we read the, the word one-to-one with a friend. And it begins with tears because as you read God's word, it causes you to weep and to mourn as you, as you, you see that, in this case, they're seeing a fresh realisation of their failure to meet God's standards for centuries. God's people had been going off the wrong way. They'd been disobedient. They'd been going their own way and doing their own thing. And it sounds so familiar because that's what we do. And from one point of view, their response was appropriate. They meet, they weep and they mourn. Yet this day, this occasion was so much bigger than that. Three times the people are told that the day is holy. Verse 9, verse 10 and verse 11. And they're commanded to be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. Say it again, rejoice, says Paul. You see the connection or the assumption that underlines all of this? The assumption is that holiness is not misery. Holiness and joy go together. Yes, they felt a sense of failure and frustration, but Nehemiah raised their eyes to the grace and the salvation that the Lord has won for them. The grace and salvation of God that he promised to their ancestors and has come to them. Our God is faithful to his promises. It's not just what Nehemiah teaches us, it's what the whole Bible teaches us. And they felt that sense of failure and frustration, but they saw the grace of God and they experienced joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah says. And so their mourning turns to joy. The invigorating joy of the Lord. The weeping and sadness of verse 9 are balanced by the joy and gladness of verse 
12. Notice verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Although repentance may lead to integrity, if it's just a kind of self-loathing, it can be truly self-indulgent. It doesn't lead to strength in God at all. But there's a profound strength in people who delight in the Lord, even when they're going through difficult times. I was just reflecting with Mamie and just saying how incredible it is when we go and visit some of those from our church who are not able to come here on a Sunday because they're frail and aged or they're in the hospital. And when you see their joy as they power on in the Lord because they know his promises are true and their hope is in him. You go to visit and encourage them and you come away more encouraged. What a great example and witness to us. In his book, uh, Desiring God, John Piper says, this is crucial for living and dying well. Because as we grow older and our bodies weaken, our focus needs to be finding strength from spiritual joy, not just the kind of natural supplies because they start to grow weaker as we grow older. And so Nehemiah's bold hope is that when delighting in God is the work of our lives, there will be this inner strength so that we can do what God has made us to do, be who God has made us to be. So we learn, I think, that joy and delight in God truly come from understanding grace, that radical grace that gives real security in believers' lives, keeping us from being swallowed up in despair. That's the reformation that's gone on in the hearts of God's people right here in Nehemiah chapter 8. They understand God's word. They see afresh the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you know that? The joy of the Lord is your strength. You can't have reformation without the centrality of the word of God, which means not only knowing but conforming to it. One of the sad things is I think sometimes people with a good heart or good intention want to see growth or change among God's people and they, they, they see this method or this thing that they think, oh, this might work or this might work. We'll bring in this celebrity and, you know, do this thing. And the confidence is in the method or the approach and not in God and his word. You see, the saying is true. What's assumed in one generation is lost in the second and is opposed by the third generation. We need to know, we need to teach our children so that they can know that the Bible always shows us the joy of the Lord is your strength. To be passionate about the gospel that changes lives. To be thankful to God for the diversity of gifts and people that he gives us as a church so that we might do all that God would have us do. You see, in um, verse chapter 7, verse 2, the leaders of God's people, it says, need to be people of integrity who fear God more than most. So if you've got the responsibility of teaching God's word, whether you're in a, a home group, in a, on a Sunday school, whether you're meeting with someone else, that's a, that, that's a great responsibility that God has given you. But that's why we're a Bible-believing church. That's why we put God's word at the centre of all that we do. It's our first priority to open the word of God, no matter what we're doing. One commentator calls this air war and ground war. You see, the air war is the preaching of God's word, Sunday by Sunday. The ground war is the, is the, the small groups. It's the one-to-one. It's the follow-up. It's the meeting with people in the, uh, meeting in the city for lunch on a Wednesday to connect and to pray and to have relationship around God's word. And we need both, don't we? Air war and ground war. The air war leads, the ground war follows, the air war brings people in, the ground war loves people, brings them into your home and into your lives and into relationship to see the gospel lived out. 
And what we find here in Nehemiah is the pattern of faithful Bible reading and teaching, of gathering as a large group and in smaller groups, gatherings characterized by the word of God, the remarkable joy that comes from that. And so that's the second thing, isn't it? The joy of living God's word is demonstrated there from verse 13. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the Lord. The heads of the households come. All the families get together for ongoing Bible study. They have this festival of booths or tabernacles, which I think Lachlan and some of the families are, get, are going to reenact in a few weeks in our Under the Stars. What do we call it? Under the Stars? A night Under the Stars. They're going to set some booths up or some, some tents. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's going to be fabulous. It's lived out relationally, isn't it? They were, they were recalling the Festival of Booths to recall the ancestors' very tenuous time post-Egypt in the wilderness journey. In this settled life, now they're in the land and the, the walls have been rebuilt. They need to remember the times when they lived hand to mouth. They need to remember and recall how fragile life is. That's what this Harvest Festival was all about. They must never forget the humiliation in the wilderness. They must never forget the one who sustained them through all of that by his word, by his promises. There's a beautiful simplicity here. I love that you see there in verse 14. They found it written in the law. And so verse 16, the people went out. They're completely obedient to God. It hasn't been like this for nearly a thousand years since the days of Joshua, when God's people first entered into the promised land when they were first delivered out of slavery from Egypt. And now nearly a thousand years later, here they stand, afresh, having been delivered out of exile, and God's word comes to them and they respond. Verse 17, the whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. And from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this and their joy was very great. So when we get this, we get the joy of living God's word as Christians, of rejoicing in the Lord. As Christians, we can say, as he says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Because that's what happens. We participate in Christ's triumph. Because in the Bible, God speaks his word to achieve the triumph, the victory of his grace the forgiveness that he brings, the justification that he gives us, the healing, the future, the hope, the joy. Rejoice in the Lord because the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's why Philippians 4 is such a great verse, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord always. That's why we sing. We sing with joy when we gather because we rejoice in the Lord. You know, when Paul wrote those words in Philippians 4, he was in prison. Rejoice not in outward circumstances of life and success and health and security and wealth and popularity. All those things can be taken away, as you and I know full well. It's not a superficial, skin-deep happiness when life is good or that we, in our North Shore niceness, North Shore niceness put on to impress others. When we hear the word of God, we may well be driven to tears as we realise how far short we have fallen. We may be struggling to read God's word regularly. We might be totally afraid to ask our friend to read the Bible with us one to one. But God, in his grace, says you don't need to have any anxiety. The answer to worry and the tears of this world is to see 
God as he is, as he's shown us in his word. He speaks to us now and he shows us his steadfast love, his holiness, his promises, so that you can see the light ahead, so that you can strain forward in the power and hope of the resurrection, so that the joy of the Lord is your strength and you find real security, real peace of mind, contentment, direction and focus in your life knowing God and being known by him and being loved like that. If you're not yet a Christian, if that's not yet true for you, I want to encourage you, I want to urge you to start at the point of your relationship with Christ because he is the word of God to us. Do you have that relationship with God in and through Christ? Because if not, you need to start with him, the word of God, so you can trust in his death, in his resurrection and accept his lordship so you can be saved, so that the joy of the Lord can be the strength of your life forever, your security and your hope. Amen.